All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. Really excited to have, uh, once again, uh, a technical conversation. I'm probably going to be out of my depths covering uh, with the co-founder and CEO of Blockshrout, uh, Uri Klarman. Um, so we're going to cover uh, quite a bit about layer zero, uh, block propagation. Correct. And uh, just general scalability and security challenges that, that Blockshrout is, uh, is, is working to um, help fix. A uh, lot of interesting things that we can dive into, uh, but I want to make sure that we keep this at a reasonable, maybe 201 level uh, at, oh, at the I, highest. I, I think anybody who knows anything should be able to understand what you're talking about. So this Cer- is cer- very certainly, easy. certainly the 101. I'm going to try to get to 201 level. I don't think I'm going to get to the PhD uh, uh, episode status that, that maybe others would. But um, before we, we dive in, um, a little bit about your background with, with Cornell and, and IC3 and, and kind of what led you to the industry in the first place, I, I suppose, but then more uh, specifically to working on this block propagation problem. Sure. So um, I recently graduated my PhD at Northwestern University. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I myself am from Northwestern. And my co-founder is Professor Alex Kuzmanovich at Northwestern. He was my advisor and network net neutrality like expert. And we work with Goon, uh, Professor Emin Goon Searer, mm-hmm. like the crypto expert at Cornell, and Sumia Basu, the creator of the Falcon Network. And we came together. So I found my, I think like most crypto people, I stumbled into this space like one day through my, in my case, my research and figured out, oh, there are very interesting things that we could do there. Mm-hmm. And for me as a networking person, it immediately like something's really popped up, popped up that I think others might have missed. So once we figured that there are very interesting things we can do in the blockchain space, I connected with Gu and I connected with Sumia. And then we realized we have this solution that solved the biggest problem in blockchain. And you know, two years later, here we are today. Well, let's get a little bit more specific about what that problem is. And, and so what year did you start working on this full time? Um, 2017, I the think. The research or the company itself? The company, so company-wise, there was a company, but then it was an Illinois company and we had to change it for investor, these kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Started working on it full time, I think, beginning of 2017. Got interested in crypto, obviously, a bit in research, like a year or two ahead of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem that we're talking about is obviously, if, if it wasn't clear up until now, it's a scalability problem. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I think that really that prevents from blockchains and crypto from really getting traction and do all the cool things everybody are really excited on doing, they all really depend on having scalability to do that. You need, if you want Bitcoin to compete with like credit card companies, credit card companies are processing 5,000 transactions per second on average today. and um, um, they peak at hundreds of thousands of transactions per mm-hmm. second. Um, so just for the money, and even without micropayments, you need like orders of magnitude more than the three transactions per second Bitcoin is doing. If you want to do the Ethereum and smart contracts and all kind of that, we're talking about very high volume of transaction per second, which today blockchain simply can't do. And I think the unique thing that we do is to identify what is it? Where is the scalability? Why can't we do it? And if you take the time to identify the problem correctly, you're very likely to find a solution for it because very few things are impossible. Now, um, your, your approach is very, very different from other approaches uh, to solving scalability. And you call it layer zero, right? So, so uh, trying to tackle the block propagation challenge, which is essentially how the network communicates peer-to-peer so, so before, before the, the rewards are mined and, 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 and additional blocks are added to different ledgers. So even before Correct? that, let's okay. simplify it. You, you said, let's keep it simple. So let's make it as simple so anybody, like the audience, it's completely clear to anybody out there. Before, what is the solution? Let's say, what is the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at a blockchain, and it doesn't matter if it's a proof of work where some miner tries many hashes until it can produce a new block, or it's a, it's a proof of stake where somebody is randomly selected or a group are voting or something, mm-hmm. they all end up having exactly the same problem. It turns out that if you take a blockchain, let's, take, let's say a POS system, usually I give Bitcoin as an example, this time I'll try a different example. There is a blockchain that's doing, let's say, an Ethereum kind of thing, 10 transactions per second. Mm-hmm. If you want to scale that, if you want to do more transactions per second, you can do 
one of two things. You can add larger blocks to the system. So in Ethereum, it's gas limit, but it's easier to talk about actual size in megabytes. Mm -hmm. So if you'll do 10 times larger blocks, you'll have 10 times more transactions in the blockchain. Mm -hmm. Or you can reduce the time between blocks, but it doesn't matter which approach you take, you end up having the same problem. It turns out that if you take a blockchain and increase the block size by a factor of 10, then if I'm producing a new block and I have to send it to everybody out there, it's going to take me 10 times longer to send it to my peer, right? 10 mm -hmm. megabytes versus one megabyte. And the time it takes for the block to reach everyone increases by the same factor, by a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. So the time it takes for a block to reach, to reach everyone takes 10 times longer. And this is a problem. And why is that a problem? Um, think about, again, in a POS system, you can't, if somebody is randomly selected to mine the next block, he can't mine the next block until he got this block, right? Mm -hmm. He can't do that. So if the time it takes, it takes 10 times longer, then even though you made 10 times larger blocks, well, it took him 10 times longer to hear of the blocks, you remain with the same throughput, right? Mm -hmm. You increase the block, but now you also increase the time between blocks. Now, that, it, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, help explain why you're starting at that level versus layer two, which is where most other scalability uh, innovations are happening today. And, and I think the general thesis historically has been Bitcoin, Ethereum, some of these other you know, blockchains do not actually need to be super scalable for that exact reason that you don't want the block size increasing such that it, con it congests the network and slows down the peer-to-peer uh, -peer communications. Uh, so instead, should we be using these blockchains as a settlement layer versus thinking about them at the lowest layer where all transactions should be uh, getting you know, thrown into the system and, and, and worried about throughput at that level? You're, you're obviously um, thinking about layer one and, and layer zero scalability versus layer two. Um, what's important about that? So let's see, why, why, why are we doing settlements and layer two? Right? Mm -hmm. The question is like, we, people build layer two solutions because they need scalability and they don't have it. So if you don't have it, you try to find, to build a solution for that, mm -hmm. which makes sense, but you should probably better understand what bottleneck, what is really the problem that prevents you? Because you'll hear all sorts of explanations. Mm -hmm. Most of them, a lot, like a lot of hand waving. So people would tell you, oh, nodes, like you want the simple, like whoever runs like a node at home, he needs to process a lot of transactions. So there is a problem of CPU there. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that your home computer today, like if you have a mid-grade computer, it can process something like 3,500 transactions per today, like, like right now. And that's not even a strong computer, just your average computer. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely not the problem, right? That's not a limiting factor. You can do... You're, you're stuck at three or at 10 today. So let's, you can definitely do more than that. Then people will tell you, oh, it's a bandwidth problem. Well, if, you're, if you have a regular 60 megabit per second link, that's probably half of what you have at home. That's enough for 15,000 transactions per second. Okay, mm -hmm. so bandwidth isn't the problem either. Then you get people who tell you, no, it's a storage problem. You don't deal, like, you can't store the entire blockchain if it's very, very big. But then comes a the question, if you're running a node, do you really need to store everything from Genesis or mm -hmm. let's say last 10, 50, 100, 500 blocks? So mm -hmm. you don't really need to contain all the history, probably. You might if you want for a specific service or something like that. Mm -hmm. But they're like, again, there is a problem, the scalability problem, but nobody says, what is the problem? So I'm going to state, before talking about the solution for it, I'm going to say what the problem is. The problem is the time it takes for a block to reach the entire network. So mm -hmm. people talk and say, it, people call this the block propagation time, mm -hmm. right? And people would, in specifically in Bitcoin, Bitcoin Core, BTC, people will say there is no block propagation time. Like blocks propagate to everybody very, very, very fast. But the reason that that's happening is because some people created relay networks and there's some problem. You have to trust the relay networks to propagate for you. If you look at historical data, blocks would take 30 seconds, 50 seconds to reach everybody. This is the limiting factor. It's not about storage, it's not about CPU, it's not about bandwidth per se, mm -hmm. it's about how long does it take for a block to reach everybody. Because you, you, you can't just arbitrarily make larger blocks, because if you do, then depending on your 
specific of your blockchain, one of two things would happen. Either, as we said, the block will take, you'll do 100 times larger blocks, they will take 100 times longer to reach everyone, and you remain with the same throughput. Mm -hmm. Or if you're think thinking something like Bitcoin, or a very simple like proof of work blockchain, then you mine a block, you start sending it, but it takes so long, like a more than the 10 time, than the 10 minutes interval between blocks. And then somebody else, while waiting for your block, he will also mine a block. And he will create a fork in the blockchain, not intentionally, he just didn't hear about your block. So the blockchain will have forks, and then forks of forks, and forks that they will just like, rather than converging back to a single blockchain. So, so that kind of makes sense. So, so that of, of course, and, and the, the solution to this initially was, um, in Bitcoin, the creation of relay networks. Um, and uh, my understanding is correctly, relay networks were built to ensure that smaller mining pools were not getting exploited by larger mining pools, so, who would take advantage of this uh, block propagation problem to selfish mine, essentially discover a block, reduce the their own propagation time or how they transmitted that information, you basically give them a head start on the next block, and then as soon as a competitive block was mined, they'd mine that one and then continue working. So you're correct, but let's, again, let's keep it super simple. So for the people who don't know what a relay network is, a relay network is just somebody who deployed a network of servers all around the world and they're optimized to propagate blocks fast. So think using um, AWS or Google Cloud or something like that, you send it to them, they broadcast it to everybody else. So such a relay network, the first one was deployed by um, a Bitcoin core developer, Matt Corello. Mm -hmm. um, my co-founders, um, Goon, Professor Amin Goon-Seer and, and Sumia Besu created the Falcon Network, which is also a relay They network. wrote the selfish mining paper. So, so yes, mm -hmm. but, but their goal, they neither of them actually, like they weren't even considering scalability. So mm -hmm. they said, oh, exactly for the reason that you said, we want blocks to propagate like fast because it helps to keep the mining yep. more fair. And that was their goal. Nobody was talking about scalability. Mm -hmm. And these solution, a simple relay network is not really a good solution for this problem. So it's a naive solution. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, that kind of solved the problem. Let's, let's use somebody who's specializing exactly in propagating blocks. But then you change the security model. If everybody have to rely on a relay network to propagate the blocks, now the relay operator controls what goes on the blockchain, what doesn't go on the blockchain. He likes you a lot. He'll take your blocks, send it to everybody else. But the other guy, he's like, oh, you'll have to pay me $5,000 a month for me to propagate your blocks or reject them completely. Are the current relay operators in Bitcoin the mining pools, typically? Or how is that market segmented? So there are relay networks, among, so there are several of them that miners kind of like use to internally propagate blocks really fast. Mm -hmm. But I want to emphasize that in Bitcoin, in Bitcoin, BTC, Bitcoin Core, this is not a concern. There isn't a concern about somebody rejecting blocks and censoring because mm -hmm. in BTC, blocks are one of the size of blocks is one megabyte. Mm -hmm. So worst case scenario, if you are the relay operator and you decide to reject somebody, it can just propagate peer to peer. It will reach everybody. It's not that big that it's a problem. Yep. But if you want to do scaling, okay, and this is why like the, the and Falcon and Fiber, they weren't looking into it. They're not. They weren't trying to scale. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't an issue that the fact that you have to to trust them because you can always propagate without them. Yes. But if you want to use a relay network in order to scale to propagate blocks fast, so you could do gigabyte blocks, mm -hmm. then you have to make sure that this is not a single point of failure. You have to make sure that they're not the one controlling which transaction go on the blockchain, which transaction don't go on the blockchain, because they can do really nasty things, right? They could say, I'm banning all blocks that touch specific wallets, or they can be like forced by, whether it's like law enforcement or whoever, or they have their own economic incentive, they can reject somebody. Like let's say Satoshi's, like Satoshi Nakamoto's mm -hmm. supposed like 1 million Bitcoins, reject any block that has a transaction that touches them. And if the relay network rejects such a block, it can't just propagate like through the peer-to-peer, -peer. it's just too slow. Mm -hmm. It will reach like five peers and then somebody else would also mine a block but it will propagate and will orphan that out. Does that, does that make sense? I, I, I think so. And, and so I, I think we have enough uh, proper context for how this architecture works, why it's important, 
and what the real predecessors were to Blockstrout and Relay Networks um, to talk a little bit more about your specific solution. And okay. that's the, you call it the Blockchain Delivery Network, which is uh, a, a play or spinoff of, of the Internet's Content Delivery Network. Right. So uh, talk a little bit about your positioning. Uh, do you see many uh, content delivery networks emerging over time? Should most traffic route through uh, a single uh, BDN like yours, so, or is it per blockchain? So the, the, the shortest answer is I think there should be one with backups. Mm -hmm. But before that, let's say, so the problem that we're solving is propagating a lot of data to a lot of people fast. Mm -hmm. This is what we're doing. Specifically on non-Bitcoin blockchains? So for current Bitcoin, Bitcoin, whether it's BTC and Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum mainnet, they're all currently already connected mm -hmm. to, to Bloxroute. But for any blockchain out there, whether it's proof of work or proof of stake or mm -hmm. permissioned or permissionless, they all suffer from the same problem. They have to send a lot of data to a lot of people fast so the next block could be mined. This is a problem and it's a stupid problem to have in 2019 because, as you said, Akamai, the first CDN, the first content distribution network, sold this in like 96. Okay, we know networking experts, or generally speaking, networking industry know how to send a lot of data to a lot of people fast. We're now doing this video, right? We're sending, I don't know, 4K video to 100,000 people all around the world. And it goes I hope it's 100,000. If Zach's doing his job, it'll be 100,000. So we're, we really know, like think of YouTube, right? Sending terabytes of data to hundreds of millions of people all around the world. We know how to send data. How do we take this and bring it to the world of blockchains? This is what mm -hmm. we do. And we really have two pieces of our architecture, right? We have performance. We have to be able to do thousands of transactions per second out of the gate. And we have to make sure that we are provably neutral, that we can't censor, that we can't discriminate. Because if we can do that, then nobody should use us, right? We shouldn't be the single point of failure. <clears throat> so what we do at Bloxart, Bloxart is similar to a relay network. It's a blockchain distribution network. As, as you said, it's taking the idea of a CDN and bringing it to blockchain. And we have a relay, a, a network of servers deployed all around the world, which is optimized to send blocks faster. And the way blockchains use Blockstart is, well, blockchains use Blockstart, it's a lot of billions. We, use this, we do this in a way that blockchains don't need to change their protocol, they don't need to change their implementation, they don't need to reach a consensus to start using Blockstart. It should be like if a miner decides, should he use AT&T or Comcast? It's deciding who is his networking provider, right? Mm -hmm. you don't, it doesn't ask everybody, oh, who should we use? Right? So we aim to provide the same thing. And the way it works is that if you're a Bitcoin miner, we give you a small piece of open source code. That's your gateway. Take this code, run it on the same machine that you run your miner. And if your miner is connected this peer to this peer and this peer, add this gateway just like any other peer, only it's a friendly neighbor peer. It's a peer that sits on the same machine. And if you mine a new block and you want to send it to everybody, send it to all your peers including the gateway, only the gateway will send it to everybody else a thousand times faster. And he will tell you of blocks from the outside a thousand times faster. How does that work though? Because your limit is the speed of light. Right? True. So, so, so you're, uh, no matter how distributed the system is, if a block originates from one IP, it still has to make all these different hops. It, you, you can't just alter the laws of physics. True, it, it will never be under something like 250, 300 milliseconds to reach an entire world. The question mm -hmm. is, that's for a one megabyte block. Can we do a gigabyte block that takes approximately the same time? Or can we do, so this is the question and each blockchain can decide. We just provide the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Each block, do we want to do 100 times larger blocks at 10 times shorter time interval, so 100, time, 100 megabyte blocks every minute, mm -hmm. or a thousand times larger blocks every 10 minutes, or these are two parameters that each blockchain can decide for itself mm -hmm. how they want to play with it. Our job, so you're correct, you can't minimize the time indefinitely, you have the speed of light, but in this short period of time, in the hundreds of milliseconds, we can propagate a thousand times more transactions, okay, so mm -hmm. gigabyte blocks at the speed of a one megabyte block. So 
this is our performance piece. And I'm putting aside our neutrality for a second because mm -hmm. it's easier to talk of each of them individually. Yep. We'll get to that. So how do we do that, right? Like we said, a thousand X is like this magic number that seems to be completely made up. Like how, do you, how Bloxout allows to do a thousand times more transactions per second using two very elegant, very powerful, but at the end of the day, very simple techniques, okay? Transactions in a blockchain are generally known in advance, right? In 99.99% of the cases, a transaction propagates, it reaches everybody, mm -hmm. and then somebody mines a new block and it has to be propagated. But everybody had already seen that transaction, mm -hmm. right? So when the block, when propagating a block, you don't really need to propagate the transaction itself. So what we do internal to Bloxroute, okay, the nodes are unaware of it, it's completely internal to what we do. We map each transaction, and transactions go between like, the average Bitcoin transaction something like 500 bytes, and we map it to a four byte ID. So we really create saying like, oh, this is transaction five, this is 17, this is 37, completely arbitrary. We decide it by ourselves. It's completely, there is, it's not hashing of transaction. It's nothing like that. We just create a mapping, which is very easy to do for us internally, right? Mm -hmm. And these gateways that everybody are using, we push to everybody. So each one of them, they all have the same hash table. They, they have the same mapping. So they know this transaction is one, this is two, this is three, et cetera, et cetera. When some miner mines a new block and want to send it to Bloxroad, you give it to the gateway. The gateway receives it. And what is a block? A block is a tiny header and a long list of transactions. So it replaces each 500 byte transaction with a four byte ID, compacting the block by a factor of 100. Send that to Bloxroad, the BDN, okay, our network of servers, mm -hmm. which broadcasts it to everybody else. And if my gateway on the other side of the world, when it receives it, it reconstructs the original block. So it taking the ID and mapping it back to the original transaction, reconstructing the original block and give it to the node that my gateway is serving. So on the wire in the money time, where timing is super critical, mm -hmm. we propagate pieces of data which are 100 times smaller. So we can propagate 100 megabyte blocks mm -hmm. at the speed of a one megabyte block because we don't really send the entire blocks. We just send pointers or IDs yep. which can be reconstructed. So this allows us to propagate 100 megabyte block at the speed of a one megabyte block. How, how many transactions can fit in a four byte ID? So four byte ID, let's do it. Four byte is 30, no, no, so, so four byte is, <laughs> 30, the quick is, is 32 bits, okay? Yep. So that's two oh, so to the power of 30, yeah. so that's a uh, billion. Uh, plenty. Okay, yeah. so four, four billion <laughs> if you want to be exact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you do that, so we, we could actually do if we want to squeeze it, we thought of doing three bytes. That would actually be suffice, but then you'll have to kind of like make extra collisions. Right. And yeah. precisely, you have to play to play with the space and kind of like it's harder. So mm -hmm. generally, building an architecture like simpler is better. We rather do four bytes, although we can sure. do slightly less, and then well, it's, everything. It's, it's still four versus fifty, or, or, or percent. Yeah. So, so that that's so. So it's two to the power of thirty-two. Yep. So, so it's kind of and 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 it's sufficient to do actually hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. So this is technique number one that we do. Fairly simple, right? That's like mm -hmm. any, anybody should be able to, I think, to understand that we just send smaller pieces of data, and that mm -hmm. allows us to do a hundred x. We're still not at a thousand x, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing that we do is that when your gateway receive a block, compact it by a factor of 100 and send it to Bloxroute, our servers don't wait until they receive the entire block and only then send it in a storing forward model. Mm -hmm. We do something called cut through routing or streaming. We receive it and we start sending it. So by the time you, the last packet arrives from your gateway, we already broadcasted everything else and only that packet has to be sent. Mm -hmm. This gives an additional between 10x and 100x improvement. Mm -hmm. And between these two techniques, we do more than a factor of a thousand faster. So we can do gigabyte blocks, which would propagate at the speed that the one megabyte block would require. And this is how we get this magical thousand x. We can actually do way better, a lot, a lot, a lot better with more sophisticated techniques. Nobody needs that today, so we decided mm -hmm. to start with the simple and okay, we'll do the more sophisticated techniques when we'll need them. But there is, we can do another between 10 and 100x, like in addition to that. 
So let's talk about the second component then, which is provable neutrality, because this makes sense, right? And in, in much the same way that a centralized database is precisely more, more it's dynamic, a, right? Because you're 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 able to do things with this centralized network. Right. I, that I can do that to. mapping between transaction and IDs, and I don't have to worry. Oh, what if somebody creates another transaction and gives the same ID, right? Yep. If this was a peer-to-peer -peer system, this is why a peer-to-peer -peer system can't just oh, can somebody just copy the technology? You can't put it as part of the protocol because if somebody is misbehaving, it will break everything. It can spam, it can do a bunch of stuff. So it, so it inserts you in a very important structural position, true. Uh, which is where the provable neutrality comes in. So how have you tackled that problem? Why, why do people trust you by default? So, so let's talk about what must we make sure that blocks out can't do. It shouldn't be able to censor and it shouldn't be able to discriminate based on where a block is coming from, mm -hmm. where is it going to, what it contains, and it should also not be, even if it's completely fair and neutral, it shouldn't be a single point of failure. What happens if blocks out goes down, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure it's not a single point of failure. This is what we must achieve. But even reaching this point, like, okay, so now we're talking practical solutions, right? It's kind of like, okay, we can do scaling. We can do thousands of transactions per second. How we make sure we don't break the security model? So the way Blocksoft works is, again, similar to the performance techniques, very simple things. They're just elegant and work. So to prevent Blocksrout from discriminating based on the content of the block, okay, what's inside it, mm -hmm. when your Magic Gateway receives a block, it compacts it, and then before sending it to Blocksrout, it encrypts it. So you send an encrypted block to Blocksrout. So Blockchain blindly send that block to everybody else. We don't know what's inside it. Mm -hmm. And your gateway will only send out to the key after your gateway here from the other, from his peers, the other magic gateways that they have received the encrypted block. So gateways create a peer-to-peer -peer network of their own. And if you send an encrypted block, if your gateway receives it, oh, I got this. And they only send you the hash of the block, right? They don't send you the entire thing that they received. Mm -hmm. And Blockstar doesn't know who you're connected to. You hide that. So you only reveal the content of the block after it reached everybody. So we can't, dis at, at this point, we can't do anything about it. Right? Mm -hmm. So let me, let me rephrase that because I think I, I, it wasn't entirely clear. The content of the block is only revealed after Blockout is sent it to everyone. So we can't discriminate based on the content because we don't know it. And once we know it, it's already too late. Does that require an opt-in on the receiver's part too? So, so uh, a sender of one of these transactions would encrypt, send it through Blockout, but the receiver on the other end has to decrypt, correct? Cor so so let's, let's split between transactions transaction. and, and blocks here. If you make a transaction, you just make a regular transaction. You don't know that blocks are exist. You don't care that blocks don't mm -hmm. exist. You make a transaction, everything remained as is. Okay, that's a user. You went to Starbucks and bought coffee with Bitcoin or whatnot. Mm -hmm. If you go, if you're a node and you receive the block, then you run that gateway. Your node also doesn't care, right? He just thinks that the gateway is another peer. He doesn't know of this entire behavior. So this entire behavior is between the gateways. And gateways, the way they act is when somebody gets a block, it send it to it encrypts it, send it to everybody else, and only so and when he hears from the other gateways, each gateway tells, Oh I got this, oh I got that. So they tell all their peers. And when your gateway hears that his block was already sent to everybody else, only then does it send the encryption key. Does, did that answer the question, or did that cite? Yes, I, I think um, the, uh, the 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 key missing piece for me is is the incentives for the gateways. So gateways. So we we wrote the gateway. It's open source, so anybody mm -hmm. can can audit it, or it will be open source once once we publish it. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to answer that, but I'm putting all this aside for a second. Why would mm -hmm. anybody? What's the incentive to use blocks? Okay, so we're going to have to do a side shift in the conversation. Mm -hmm. There are There is a long-term value and there is a short-term value to use Blockshot. The long-term value is that Blockshot aims to reach this win-win-win scenario where everybody are extremely happy. So if Blockshot allows for a thousand times more transactions per second, mm -hmm. users can pay 10 times lower fees than they're paying right now, 
while miners will make a hundred times more fees in total, right? Each fee is 10 times smaller, but they make a thousand times more transactions. So users are happy. That's the first win. They make, they get small, they pay smaller fees. Mm -hmm. And miners are happy because they make a hundred times more fees. So that's their long-term value in using and, and, it, and is it because the miners, instead of rank ordering transactions based on fees uh, directly, are now relying on you to process those fees? No, so I, we, we actually don't do any, any of that. Miners already today, they can do whatever they want, right? Mm -hmm. They do over the counter, they have deals with people like with exchanges to include their transaction fast. They can always do whatever they want. Our value proposition is to say a thousand times more transactions per second allow value capturing both by users by paying lower fees and miners they just make more transactions per second, right? Mm -hmm. So they make a thousand times more transactions per second. However, they decide to include them, assuming each fee is 10 times smaller, they make a hundred times more fees. Well, this also assumes that what other block, whatever blockchain you're working with and powering increases the block size. So, so because you can't have a thousand a, 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 times. You're right. So, so this assumes like, okay. That There's the an protocol, upper bound for Bitcoin, for example. So, so right. So like in Ethereum, miners can increase the gas limit by mm -hmm. themselves by up to 10% of the, like whatever the last X yep. blocks were, right? So they can decide from themselves. Some, um, um, some, a lot of protocols don't have this limit, but um, we're keep sides to, to, like talking about different aspects, but our idea, we, we don't do our own blockchain, right? We're not trying to compete with blockchain, we're enablers. Mm -hmm. So we enable all blockchains, right? So we allow Bitcoin and Ethereum like all work out of the gate, but we also have an open API. Whatever is your blockchain, you can write a small piece of code to make sure the gateway works with you and it works out of the gate. So we enable everyone mm -hmm. and whoever will do a good job about like, capturing this potential and getting a lot of transactions per second will benefit from it. And those who won't, I guess it will vanish with time, but that's how I, I look at things. So we enable, and it's definitely each blockchain and each crypto ecosystem will decide mm -hmm. what to do with this capacity. My, our job is to provide this capacity. So, so we, we, we've got a, a bunch of embedded parentheticals here, right? So, you, you, so the question before this, you were talking about the win-win-win, and we, we got sidetracked a little bit. The, so the, the users are paying lower fees, the miners make more. Who's the third winner? Blockstruct. Blockstruct. But, but, so, but, but let, let me, so prior to that, so I just want to finish the point of a long-term value and short-term value, mm -hmm. okay? So this is the third parenthetical. No, I think it's the second. I think the third was what happened if the protocol doesn't allow for it. So regarding the protocol doesn't, each crypto ecosystem can decide whatever it wants. We're enabling and whoever will do a good job utilizing this capacity will benefit from it and whoever won't, won't benefit from it. So we don't take a stand in that. We enable everyone. In terms of who's getting the value out of it, we provide, so what I told you now is, is the long-term value and regarding blocks are, so this win-win-win, Blocksrout can't charge anyone directly to use Blocksrout. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to that because we didn't finish the provable neutrality, but we can't because we can't discriminate, right? I can't prevent, mm -hmm. like, I can't, you, I can't charge you like a subscription if I can't prevent you from using me if you're not paying the subscription. Mm -hmm. So the way we build the incentive is to provide free capacity, right? Up until 100 transactions per second, everything goes. Nobody should pay Blocksrout and there's mm -hmm. nothing that but we add additional capacity for transactions that pay to blocks route 5% of a cent, okay? Like 10% of whatever the mining fee is. Mm -hmm. A user, nobody has to pay us, but if somebody pays blocks route, its total fee would reduce. And why the total fee would reduce? Because when the mine, let's say that the fee usually is a cent. If you're a miner and somebody pays you half a cent mm -hmm. and it pays blocks out 5% of a cent, you look at the transaction, you're like, oh, he doesn't pay the minimum that I usually require. But on second thought, you know what? This is not instead of the transaction in the free capacity, that 100 transactions. This is in addition to that. So even though it just pays you half a cent, well, you can make another half a cent and will actually increase the free capacity the more these transactions you include. So you as a miner has an incentive to include this transaction even though it doesn't pay your regular one cent, it only mm -hmm. paid you half a cent. So we're providing this fee reduction service. Mm -hmm. You can pay blocks on really a minimum, like 5% of a cent. Users shouldn't even consider like their brain about it. But 
if you want to reduce your fee, you can pay Blockstream this fee reduction service. So this is a win-win-win kind of thing. Now, it, it, it's interesting, um, but it starts to sound a lot like interchange fees uh, in, in, for credit cards. Um, so how do you uh, actually get people to buy into this type of system long term? I would imagine it's with the token. No, uh, no. That, so that, that you're that you're so you're so this like I'm going to say a word about the token like later, but like our we have a security token which is if you would like to invest in blockchain. This is not a utility token. It, it is, is for fees, right? So it is, it is a bona fide security, right? You're securitizing. If, fees if you want a piece of these, like five percent of a cent, mm -hmm. you can invest in Blockstream if you think this is going to work and it's yeah. going to make a lot of money. But it has not. You don't use these tokens at all. So to your question, yes. how, how do you get people to use this? As so, I began. I mean, there is. But maybe maybe uh, use is the wrong word because ultimately, I don't think the users care uh, as long as the network is faster and, and the other kind of critical stakeholders. Um, my uh, question was more about the uh, stakeholder alignment and getting people excited for something like this to exist as infrastructure if they have a stake in it, which is what the securities token so, uh, may allow, then it seems like the pushback you so, might be able to minimize a bit. So there is something to that, but that's not the route that we're taking. The okay. reason people should get excited about it is, so I talked about the long term, what is the short term value? I go to miners, I go to validators and I tell them, here is a magic gateway. Now, remember, miners and validators never pay Blockstrap. Okay, users can choose, those making transactions can decide to add an output to Blockstrap. Mm -hmm. This is a free service. We give them to miners and validators. You can hear about blocks a thousand times faster. Now, if you're a miner, if you hear about a block sooner, you can start mining on top of it sooner, mm -hmm. and you can make more money. It's very, it's a, so, we're already we have collaborations with big uh, with mining pools and large miners and validators and stakers we tell them let's try to collaborate let's deploy blockstart and this is what we're doing right now if we're successful we allow them to make more money so this is a very easy case to go to miners and validators and say we're trying to help you make more money because you mm -hmm. will hear about blocks faster and you will be able to make more money. So this is a show if we talked about long long term value, I want them to make a hundred X and I want users to make 10 X lower fees. In the short term, I offer them, oh, we scale everything out of the gate. You want a hundred transactions per second, free, nobody even pays for that. You get that now, you never pay us. And if you're a miner or if you're a valid validator, I allow you to make more money. It seems to be a very like, like sweet deal to most of them because it seems to be working. So that kind of makes sense. I can I, I can certainly imagine um, other ecosystems uh, very willing to experiment with this because out of the box you can think about long term scalability and you don't really have the user base or the network to um, to prevent you from taking these types of, of technical risks or or, or, or uh, taking on certain design uh, debt as you think about the the growth of the ecosystem. Um, what I wonder is, will this ever be, um, will this ever hit scale for Bitcoin and for Ethereum? Or is this primarily going to be fuel for competitive networks that want to think about raising the block sizes or, or you know, the states that are stored? Um, and, and instead relying on, you know, a federated group of participants in the ecosystem that are going to store the full state, so, the full transaction history of, of, of an ecosystem. And as long as the connective tissue is fast and reliable and provably neutral, they don't really care. So here's the thing. You said about the technical debt. Right now, mm -hmm. everybody are using their ISP, AT&T or Comcast or whoever. Mm -hmm. That's a centralized entity. It can throttle you. It already is throttling you. Mm -hmm. If you're running a node, you're likely actually violating your term, like, like your ser service terms and whatnot. And I'm fine with that. Don't like. I couldn't care less. But <laughs> there, if you think that the internet itself, that its infrastructure, that the physical wires everywhere are decentralized, you're wrong. They're not. So we're not mm -hmm. really. What we're here is to say, oh, we can actually provide you the same networking infrastructure you're getting from AT&T or Comcast or whoever. But A, we do a thousand times faster like job doing it. 
and we're provably neutral in a way that they aren't. And we didn't finish talking about that, but I'm putting that aside for a second. Well, let's, let's finish that. Okay, that, so, that is, so, that is an important so the, the piece that we said about the neutrality was... We're going to have to clean up these show notes because I'm trying to keep up with you, and I know we've, um, had, like, so, we've had like many, many parentheticals here. So provably neutral part two. So provably neutral part two. So we said that blockchain can't discriminate based on the content of the block because mm -hmm. that is only revealed after it already gave it to everybody else, right? So block is encrypted, sent to Blockstar, to everybody else, and the key is revealed after it was sent. And it's not being sent out until Blockstar had sent it to everybody else. Now, because Blockstar doesn't know how gateways are connected to each other, they keep it hidden. We can't, if you're that gateway, that we can't just send it to those you are connected to. We don't know who you are connected to, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to send it to everyone, or at least to the vast majority, and they will know if somebody, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about the small details of that, but we don't know the content of the block. Mm -hmm. Now to prevent discrimination based on where the block came from, right? Maybe I don't, I'm not discriminating based on where it is, but it came from you, and you gave me such a hard interview, I'm not propagating your blocks, right? So gateways do something very similar to Tor. Rather than send it directly to Blockstar, they relay it through another gateway to Blockstar. So Blockstar doesn't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. So assuming you're a node in North Korea and Blockstar is legally not allowed to send anything to or from North Korea, mm -hmm. your gateway encrypts a block, send it through, let's say, a European node. We received a small piece of encrypted data that we don't know where it came from. And the same the receiving end, your, block, your gateway can ask gateways to relay blocks to them. So we don't know where it came from. We don't know where it's going, right? I send it to that European gateway. I don't know that it goes to North Korea. I'm mm -hmm. sending it to Europe. Yep. So we can't discriminate based on the content of the block. Where is it coming from and where is it going to? Because we don't know these things intentionally. So we can't discriminate based on them. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Cool. So that's on that. There is an additional piece. Okay, blockchain is fair. But what happens if a meteor comes and hits all of Blockstar servers and now it went down and now Bitcoin went from 3,000 transactions per second to three, right? We can't have that. We mm -hmm. can't be a single point of failure. And to overcome this problem, which is the hardest problem to overcome, we're going to open source our entire code and to allow anybody to deploy a backup network. The idea is you're going to deploy a idle version of Blockstart yourself. So we're going to, you're going to get the deployment script and everything. And if you have any stake, like you're a small miner, you're a business that uses crypto, and you want to make sure that block, you receive blocks and send blocks, well, you create a version of Blockstart of yourself. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't incur costs because it doesn't send anything. Mm -hmm. It's waiting for that doomsday scenario, okay? If Blockstart goes down. How many redundant um, systems would you need I think you would like to have like at least in the order of five. Okay, you need multiple of them. So mm -hmm. um, Coinbase to have one, and via BTC or yeah. or or whoever or Rawpool or any pool out there. Like each one of them cares about receiving blocks and about sending blocks, and they want the blockchain to continue. So each one of them paying I don't know twenty five dollars a year or something like that to have that running, not doing anything, and that's there really never to be used, but it makes it makes sure that there isn't any point in taking blocks out down because it won't do anything, right? All mm -hmm. the magic gateways will do a hop swap, immediately go to these backup networks and use them. Now, if it was a small glitch, well, they will hop back to Blockstart. If it's permanently down, they can continue to use Blockstart for six months or a year or two years or until each crypto ecosystem will decide well, Blockstar is gone, is gone, what would you, li would you like to replace it with? Mm -hmm. But that makes sure, and again, this should never happen. This is the doomsday scenario of like, like I don't know, we, me or he to everybody, like all our servers or whatnot. But we or are- the US government just- US government came, shut us down. It doesn't matter because mm -hmm. we're not, ev everything will continue to operate even if we're gone. gone. We have to be replaceable. Yep. But this makes us both provably neutral and not a single point of failure. Does that kind of make sense? It does. Okay. Um, so there's there's probably another hour uh, that we could cover on this. It's fascinating. It's a much different approach than most of the other scalability um, 
challenges uh, and, and approaches to solving uh, these problems that, that we hear and read about on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, what is what does success look like in the next six to 12 months at layer zero okay. versus what gets much more press in lightning and sharding? And, so if and we wanted to else. do more press, like we will make more press or keeping it like in the, like we want people to know well, what we're, we're doing because we're creating that. Press should be a function of whether you actually ship. So, so technically so, like- So okay, we're going to ship at the end of June this year. Okay, mm -hmm. so everybody like, I, I can't stand these like, oh, we're doing this super sophisticated kind of stuff. You, you don't know if that's, this product is ever going to ship mm -hmm. and whatnot. So success for us has several parts. Um, we're doing right now this collaboration with large miners and, and large poles because we're going for this short-term value that we, we, we said earlier. We want to, de we're deploying it there so we can tell them exactly, okay, with block, without blocks that you're making X amount of money and with mm -hmm. blocks you're making Y amount of money and mm -hmm. how much more money they make. So this is one piece that we're doing. A second piece is actually shipping and Blockstar is already working. Again, it's already connected today to Bitcoin Core, Mainnet and Testnet, Bitcoin Cash, Mainnet and Testnet, Ethereum, several Testnets and Mainnet. Mm -hmm. So it's already working out there. Shipping and providing V1 off Blockstar, which has all these bells and whistles. So this encrypting, sending it out, we already have it working, right? Oh, today. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to ship at the end of June this year. Um, so that's piece number two. And going a bit to the business side and the token that you mentioned, our idea is to make very, to receive very, very small payments. Okay, 5% of a cent. Our idea is to give, again, users pay 10 times less fees, miners make 100. We give away 99.9% .9 of the value that we create goes to users and miners. Mm -hmm. And we capture this 0.1%. But we're very happy with this 0.1% because at 30,000 transactions per second, if you do 5% of a cent times 30,000 transactions per second times 31 million seconds in a year, that's like $460 million per year in revenues with very, very low cost. Our end game is at 200, 300, 400,000 transactions per second, and that's billions of dollars per year. So we're very happy. I don't care. I'm very happy to make very, very, to receive very, very tiny payments. And that's our business model. And so we're doing, like, we have a lot of good investors in us. So we have, like, Coinbase had invested in us, and Terra had invested in us, and Finbushi, Metastable, One Confirmation. We, Zenfund, I can even start Naval have been with us from the beginning, Flybridge, like really, I, I can start like talking, but it never ends kind of thing. Um, we, another piece of what we do, we allow people to invest in Blockstrap, okay? And the reason that we do that is because if we're receiving money from the crypto ecosystem, it's only fair for it to go back out. It's kind of like, oh, we're receiving all that. We're the bad guy, right? It doesn't matter that we give away 99.9% of the value that we mm -hmm. do it. If we capture so much value, then we're, we're the bad guys. We're the rent seekers. We're the leechers. So we have to make sure it goes back to the ecosystem. How much of the revenue stream will the security token securitize? All these revenues go to the token holders. So if you hold, if we issue, and 100%. we issue a cap, a hundred percent. So if you, if we, if we issue a hundred and you own one of them, then one percent of the revenues go to you. Now this is even revenues, not profit. So you don't even care how blocks are where it's not. Oh, what are so the how, costs? How much, how, much, you, how much are you planning to reserve initially? So we start. So. Blockstart will decisions. always be a large stakeholder because this is how, like, sure. this is the revenue stream of the company which has to operate. Um, our idea is to start by selling 20% out mm -hmm. of all of that, and that's like round one. A year after or two years after, when it makes sense, maybe we'll sell another 10% or another 20 mm -hmm. I see Blockstart, I, I don't want to sign this because like this isn't written it's in discretionary. stone, but yes. generally, like, I don't know, Blockstart should continue to hold 50% or something like a seat. Should it be 40? Should it be 60? I don't know, but a substantial amount of the tokens, because mm -hmm. this is its revenue stream, this is how it operates. And anybody who's interested in being part of that, and it's kind of, oh, that's a good investment. And again, this token isn't used for anything. This is just if you want to invest in Blockstart, and you want a piece of that small, tiny payments, but a lot of them, mm -hmm. then, th then that's a way to go. Well, uh, technically speaking, uh, I know there's a lot that needs to be proven out still, uh, but it, 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 it uh, in the lab works. 
whether what you've developed is ultimately adopted is going to be a function of your ability to, to close some of the miners, some of these ecosystems, and, and onboard these new teams. Um, it certainly makes a heck of a lot of sense, uh, at least on the uh, economic side, as you think about enticing people to buy into the system so that they have, they have ownership uh, of, of the fees long term and uh, you aren't just uh, extracting rents uh, from, from the broader ecosystem. So I think, I think that all makes sense. And on, on that note, in, in the lab, it's not really in the lab, it's deployed in the real world, but in mm -hmm. order to actually test how much we can do, well, we took the Bitcoin code, specifically Bitcoin Unlimited, because they solved the small bottleneck in the code. We deployed quite a lot of nodes there, Mm -hmm. And we wanted to see how many transactions per second we can with Bitcoin. Okay, the mm -hmm. first blockchain, like you can, it's not like a super sophisticated. We all know how it works. Mm -hmm. We're seeing peaks at thirty-five hundred transactions per second, like to, on Friday. That mm -hmm. um, consistently in the thousands, we still have like we're now replacing part of our propagation from like into a C plus plus extension because it's faster, so we can do better. We have mm -hmm. where to improve too, but we're already seeing thousands of transactions. Thousand of transactions per second. So this isn't something. Oh, it should work. It's working. Like it's working right now. We haven't shipped because we prefer to actually have the product ready and then sell it rather than the other way around. Like happens so many times in crypto. But this isn't like. Well, maybe it will work. This works. I know it works. Right. It works also for Ethereum. It also scaled that. Not thousands yet, but it's in the hundreds at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Just want to point that. Well, we're going to know one way or the other in the next few months. Even the skeptics uh, will know one way or the other. So um, really uh, fascinating stuff. I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, and this will be up in the next couple of days on iTunes. So our live, our live viewers got a sneak peek. Uh, until next time, we'll have to do it again soon. Uh, that was once, great. Once there's a, uh, uh, once you actually do release in June. Um, but uh, in the meantime, best of luck. Thank uh, you. Busy couple of months coming up. So, Ray Klarman. That was fun. Thanks, guys. Until next time, thank you again to our sponsors at Token Tax and Token Soft. Check them out and uh, check out Blocktrap. Until next time, peace.